Well, hey, everybody. It's so good, as Josh said, to see you today. And we're going to do something that's a little different in our usual order of worship. And we're going to take some time to pray. And I think you're already kind of knowing why. So I'm going to just ask if you would to take a seat for a moment. We'll stand back up uh, as we uh, continue to sing in just a few moments. But uh, some very tragic, uh, terrible things have happened in our country in this last week. And as a church, we want to take some moments to, to be praying uh, for everything that's involved in, in the aftermath of these events. So I just want to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to read um, some verses of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray. And then where you are there uh, in your seat, you lift uh, your petitions, your intercessions uh, to the Lord. So let's bow together and go before him. Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it leads only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Heavenly Father, in this past week, in Gilroy and El Paso and Dayton, uh, we have witnessed with horror yet another round of evil and life-destroying darkness. And today, Lord, we are grieving. We are we're asking why. With the psalmist, Lord, we are praying, how long, O Lord, how long before you cut off every expression of evil? How long before the wicked will be no more? How, how much longer, Father, is just a little while? When will the violence and the tribalism and the terror and the hatred and the anger die a thousand deaths? And it's hard, Lord, not to feel fear, fearful and angry when back-to-school shoppers experience a Walmart as a war zone. Lord, we just feel lost in our inability to understand. Uh, we feel paralyzed. Help us, Lord, not to be paralyzed in outrage and anger. Lord, help us to have ears and eyes and hands that reflect you, your love. Lord, may our words both uh, spoken and online, be words that direct people to you. Lord, as your people here in this place, we pray uh, for the cities of Gilroy, El Paso, and Dayton. Lord, we pray for those whose lives have been forever changed by violence. Lord, we pray for healthcare workers and counselors and first responders and pastors and neighbors as they they show up to love. Lord, we pray that you would heal wounds and hearts and families. Lord, we pray that many will turn to you. Father, we, we don't pray in self-righteous judgment, but we pray as your weary children, forgiven our sins by your grace. And Lord, we long for the day when perfect peace will replace this world's evil and darkness. 
And Lord, until that day, we ask that you would free us from a thirst for both revenge and just passive resignation. Lord, make us warriors of peace and agents of hope. And Lord, give us wisdom to know how we should live, how we should follow you. Lord, remind us that, as your word says, our labors in the Lord are never in vain, that Jesus has defeated evil on the cross, and that he will eradicate it when he comes again. Hasten that day, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, good morning. It wasn't long ago uh, at a church outside of Chicago that a pastor was asked to be a keynote speaker at a men's retreat, and he looked forward to doing so, and he packed like he normally would. He went to put his usual couple of polo shirts, polo shirts in that he would wear, when all of a sudden he felt led to do something a little different. So he put in a game jersey. You know those replica game jerseys of your favorite team that have the jersey number and the name on the back of your favorite player? So he threw that in the bag and he took off. But unknown to him at that same time, same exact time, another man was grappling with whether to attend the event or not. And he'd been searching for answers. He'd looked all around in this world like many of us had, and he hadn't found the direction that he sought. So finally, after much prodding from one of his friends, he finally acquiesced and decided, I will go to this men's retreat. And as he went, he actually lifted up a prayer, and he said, Lord, if you just show me some sign, some indication that you are real, I will truly believe. Well, when they got to that event, the very first night, the very first session, here came the pastor out to be the keynote speaker wearing that jersey, which once again he had never done ever before when he had done many of these events in the past. Well, that man that was grappling with that decision that reluctantly gave in to attend was astonished. You see, because the jersey that the pastor was wearing was the jersey of the man that was looking for direction and seeking a sign. He was the professional athlete that came to that event, it was his jersey number that was on the speaker, and it was his name that was embroidered in the back. You know, we all look for signs from time to time. Maybe you looked for one this weekend, and you prayed about that, and that's not unusual. You know, and also, we are encouraged to know that Amos 3, 7 says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And so that revelation will come as we seek that out, and we're true. At the same point in time, I wonder how many of us have stopped and thought for a moment, maybe we are the sign. Maybe we're the instrument that God wants to use to deliver his message today to someone that's out there that is too searching for those answers. Maybe we are his instrument of choice. You know, in my childhood home, my mom used to always put this little sign up on the wall. It was a little placard, and it said, both rebel and Yankee spoken here. And it had to do with their birth origins. You know, my mom was from the South, and my dad was above the Mason-Dixon line, and I used to listen humorously as they would politely and, uh, and in fun argue about the pronunciation of words. They would say, is it creek or crick? Is it pecan or pecan? 
And as you might guess, because I was the mix of the fire, crossfire of that conversation, I picked up a little of this, a little of that. And so when I lived in Boston, they told me I sounded like a southerner. And when I lived down south, they told me I was a Yankee. Basically, I didn't fit anywhere. Maybe a true sojourner. And when you combine the fact that I've lived in 11 different states, I picked up something here, I picked up something there, but it made me think maybe that's a perfect description and an analogy for all of us. You know, we sound different, you and I. We have different dialects. We have different jargon that we have picked up in our vocabulary. We have different accents as well. But maybe the one thing that's common to us as Christ followers is that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe metaphorically, people should look at us, and when they meet us, they should say, you're not from around here, are you? And we're not. We've been called out of this world. We're not of this world. It's as if we have a sign hung around our neck at times that says Christ follower. You see, we're to stand up for Christ, and we're to stand out from the crowd, just like the psalmist in chapter 71. He said this in verse 7, I have become a sign to many. Because of the many adversities and attacks, many people were amazed at this psalmist. They were surprised that a man, especially one so committed to God, could be so afflicted. You might say he had their undivided attention. And I spoke about that last week when I talked about the storms of life, that one of the reasons for those storms, if you remember, is that they allow us to project. It's a projecting storm that allows us to have a chance to show Christ to those that are witnessing our response to this adversity. The writer of this psalm must have been a high-profile person because many people knew him, and they saw all the things that had happened to him. Apparently, he had endured many trials, many troubles throughout his lifetime, but the one thing that was consistent was he did not falter. He did not deny the Lord throughout that time. His life was a wonder. His life was a testimony of God's goodness in spite of those storms. And our challenge is, in our life, our opportunities to be shown to be true as well. If you think you're alone, I want you to know that's not the case. In fact, we're in very good company. We look at Simeon. When he was holding the infant Jesus in his arms, he spoke to Mary and Joseph, and he said he foretold the future humiliation that Jesus would experience. He said this in Luke chapter 2, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. You know, you can't have a comeback for the ages unless the odds are so stacked against you that the thought of victory is just unfathomable to those around you. And you can't snatch victory from the jaws of defeat unless the outcome is considered so inevitable that nobody would place a wager on your behalf. And you can't be a sign to many and draw others to the rock of refuge unless you've had to cling to that rock at some point or time in your life. We have to have those opportunities to live out our faith for multiple reasons, and one of them is to be assigned to many. Whether you experience good times or bad times, I want you to know that we're not to live our lives in anonymity. We're not supposed to be hiding in the shadows. What good is a sign if it's not visible? And I found that out the hard way. As a teenager, I was driving my girlfriend home at the time, and I went through each intersection. It was a road that I wasn't really familiar with, but the thing that was consistent was that I had the right-of-way each, at each and every intersection until one, and I did not see the stop sign. The accident was my fault. Thankfully, everyone walked away without a scratch, but I retraced my steps to find out how in the world did I miss that sign. And what I saw was this. 
Remember the 1970s conversion vans, those big things? One of those parked right out in front of this stop sign and also a tree in the lawn there in maturity in full foliage. And I was completely obstructed. My vision, I could not see the signs. See, signs are important. There's tangible and intangible reasons for these signs. You know, tangibly, you know, first of all, they provide us a baseline, a starting point. You know, you've been to a mall. We were at the Mall of America recently, my wife and I, and you look at the map and it says what? You are here. That's the first point you need to find. Signs also do other things. They give direction of where we would like to go. And then finally, like the stop sign, they give caution or warning for the obstacles that could come along in our path that could prevent us from being able to get to our destination safely. But intangibly, also, signs indicate relationship. I enjoyed always going down south to my family in Arkansas and seeing them. One of the people I enjoyed seeing was my cousin, Chip. Now, Chip was a little bit older than me, but maybe it's because of the fact that he would still spend time with me, even though I was a young boy, that I really looked up to Chip. And one of the things that I appreciated about him, I thought was unique, though, was how do you get a nickname Chip? It wasn't a nickname that I didn't know at the time, but I thought it was his given name. I was just a young boy. It was my mom that told me it was just a nickname because it was given to him because he was so much like his father, my uncle Kenneth. And when I looked at him, I didn't see the physical resemblance, but then when he spoke and I saw his mannerisms, I got it. Well, I want you to know as Christ followers, we're tangible and intangible signs as well. We do all four. We, our presence should be an introductory part to some people on their lifelong journey as disciples for Christ that should lead them and help guide them from infancy to spiritual maturity. And intangibly, our lives should emulate our Savior, Jesus Christ. We should be too chips off the old block. You know, some people will look and they'll never see. And maybe we've been described that way from time to time. Somebody said it could be an IMAX screen, a jumbotron, and that person's just not going to get it. Maybe you've said you could hit them over the head with a billboard and they're still not going to get it, but it's still no excuse. At the same point in time, we got to remember that back in those days that we read in Scripture, the Israelites were trained. The Jewish leaders were trained to look for signs of the coming Messiah, and yet when he walked amongst them, they, he went by unnoticed to them. So it can happen, but at the same point in time, it does not negate our responsibility. Our responsibility is to put Christ on, supply, on display, and that means both visibly and audibly. Jesus says this, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So we need to speak up as Christ followers. We speak to fellow believers because our testimony will encourage them during the walk of their life. And we speak to those that are lost because we hope that that will help lead towards the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We speak. Our job is to tell them, but it's also to show them put things on display that should be easily seen if they would just pay attention for a moment. In Romans 8, we read this, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Figuratively speaking, people around us at times may be blind or maybe they're hearing impaired, so the best signs are those that are going to be both seen and heard. We need to put ourselves out there because the gospel message warrants differentiation. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3, 
verses 15 and 16, he said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. You see, not all the attention we're going to receive, we talked about that last week, is going to be good and positive, but speak we must, speak we shall, just like the psalmist in chapter 71. He said, for my enemies talk about me and those who spy on me plot together. In the NLT, it says whispering as if talking behind our backs quietly. But that should not matter. And this psalmist responded in the right way. He didn't speak at them in response. He spoke for them. And he did that by doing two things. One, he spoke to him, our heavenly father. And then secondly, he spoke out to them to share about his Lord. And we are to follow the same example of the person that wrote Psalm 71. We aren't just to weather the storm that we talked about last week. We are to show up, to show out, and to speak up. We are to be walking and talking billboards for Jesus Christ, signs that cannot be missed. And that means we need two things. We need a direction and we need an audience. First, we are to direct our praise upward to an audience of one. It might not surprise you, but it, the tallest structure on the National Mall in D.C. is the Washington Monument. It stands 555 feet high. It's nearly twice the height of the U.S. Capitol building. But what might surprise you is the words that are engraved at the top of that monument. They're Latin. Laus Deo. Praise be to God. See, true praise comes from a grateful heart that sincerely wants to glorify and please the Lord. And like the Washington Monument, we are to lift it up to the highest of heights. David does this as he kicks off Psalm 103. In the very first verse, he says this, Praise the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me, praise his holy name. Soul means that true worship is not just to be expressed outwardly, it resonates from within. It requires all that is within me, and that's why the next fill-in is all. The word all is found at least nine times in Psalm 71. For this psalm is a call to true commitment, total commitment to the Lord. True worship is not half-hearted. It's not going through the motions. I like what Campbell Morgan said. He said this when referring to the 103rd Psalm. He said, the one value of these unopening words is that they show up or show us that worship is not voluntary, automatic. It calls for coordination of all our powers. There's that word all again. The sanctuary is not a lounge, a place for relaxation. We should interact with all the powers of personality arrested, arranged, dedicated. Then we may render a service of praise that is worthy and acceptable. We don't come on Sunday mornings for what we get. We come on Sunday mornings for what we can give. It's an interactive process, and we need to come prepared each and every Sunday. It's easy to direct our praise upward when we remember all that he's done with us, and that's why the second fill-in here in this place is remember. David said this, don't forget a single blessing, but don't all of us do that same thing? We have that natural tendency. If we don't remind ourselves, if we don't remember, Charles Spurgeon said, we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. Isn't that the truth? I know that speaks to me. But you know, at least 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses 
admonished the people to remember the Lord and all that he had done. Nine times he cautioned them to not forget. And the writers of the book of Psalms that we've been studying this summer, 92 times they implored us to remember. 157 times they told us, don't forget. There are lessons that we should learn from all of this. In fact, it was in Judges chapter 2 that we see that it was the third generation of Jewish people that forgot, and when they forgot, it led to the decay of the Jewish nation. I often like to quote somebody who once said, life is to be learned backwards and lived forwards. We're to learn from these mistakes, the mistakes of those that came before us, so we don't make the same mistakes, and certainly the mistakes that we have made as well. We need to remember to remind ourselves just how blessed we are. Among other things, when we're going through those stormy seasons, they help us and encourage us during that duration. In Psalm 103, David listed six special blessings from the hand of the Lord. They are just as true today as they were for him back then. We praise the Lord because we remember that he, first of all, he forgives. In verse 3, he forgives all my sins. I love that word, all. All my sins. In fact, in verse 10, he goes as far to say as he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, remember, just a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris Martinez was preaching on Psalm 51, and so we already know that David was an adulterer, David was a murderer, and yet God forgave him. And if David is called a man after God's own heart, that should encourage you and I today. And it should be noted that it's significant that of all the listing of the blessings that David pointed out, forgiveness was the first one because it's this one that he felt was most important. We're so thankful for God's forgiveness. Those who've trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior are forgiven. We have that peace today. And it always reminds me of that price that was paid, the sacrifice. Paul said it best in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Secondly, he heals you know, God is able to heal every disease, but it does not mean he's obligated to do so. You know, Paul was unable to heal two of his friends. David, his own baby, died, even though he had spent time, a great deal of time, in prayer and fasting. The believer's body will not be completely delivered from weakness and disease until it is redeemed and glorified at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it was one year ago today in fact, that I returned to the pulpit and shared my healing experience. See, I sit today because I had to sit a year ago because I did not have the stamina after two heart surgeries to be able to preach three services in a row. I sit today as a reminder of just how blessed I am that the Lord has extended my time. He heals, often refers to curing someone from physical sickness but it can also be used as a metaphor for restoring the moral and spiritual life. In Jeremiah 3, we read, My wayward children, says the Lord, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. No matter where you're at today, it's, you're, you're not too far gone. There's still a chance. There's an opportunity for us to repent, to pivot, to turn back to the Lord, and we're promised that when we do so, he will heal us spiritually. It can also be an invitation to accept the healing of salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
We read, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The third blessing that David points out is he redeems. The word redeems in the fourth verse there would remind the Jewish people of the exodus and their escape from enslavement in Egypt. The statement describes God today, saving us, rescuing us from the pit, and the pit is a symbol of death. Number four, he crowns. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. This has to do with significance and promotion. We are significant because he gave his only son as an atoning sacrifice for us, for our sins, because we could not do it ourselves. We are significant because he invests in us during this walk in life, and when we're faithful to him, he shows us his favor, and he rewards us both with reward for now and for reward for eternity, and he promotes us to greatest service here in this lifetime and in all time as we serve our King and Lord of Lords. Number five, he satisfies. He fills my life with good things. The NIV says, he satisfies your desires. I cannot help but think of Psalm 37.4, and Pastor was speaking from Psalm 37 earlier, but I can't help but think about that because that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But I want you to know that the verse is true, but it's true when you allow him to put the desires in your heart. Not that they're self-centered, but they're selfless and they seek him for what we want to have filled. The Rolling Stones were correct. I can't get no satisfaction and I know I, I uh, date myself. I saw somebody bobbing their head as I said that right there too. I saw you. <laughs> But it was correct, and it was by design that that was the case. Our hearts were created for a need of satisfaction so that we would seek it out, so we would search for it. And we would search for it, first of all, many of us have searched for it where? Of this world, and we're not going to find it in this world. If we do, it's temporal. It's not lasting. It can be described as a thirst or a hunger, and where we find it is in Jesus Christ, because Psalm 107 says this, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. The parallel to Psalm 103 is amazing. God is truly amazing. Number six, he renews. My youth is renewed like the eagles. This is a picture of an individual that was approaching old age, and yet even then the Lord was allowed, allowed him to soar like an eagle. And again, we're th we think of Isaiah 40 31 that many of you are familiar with. But those who hope in the Lord, that's all of us. We place our hope in the Lord. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up their wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The Lord renews. And the best example that I could come up with today to share with you is Caleb from Scripture. You remember he was one of the 12 spies that was sent into Canaan to do the scouting and report back. And 10 of them came back and said, those foes are, foes are too formidable. We can't go up against them. That's not the way Joshua and Caleb saw it. In Numbers 13, we read at 40 years of age, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are, we are well able to overcome it. But we know the rest of the story. They did not listen. 
And because of that, a generation was lost that never had the opportunity to cross that Jordan River and enter that promised land. A new generation had to be lifted up, one that would believe his promises and be willing to accept the blessing that the Lord wants to give. And while others might, at the first sign of gray hair, begin to contemplate and consider and plan retirement and step aside for younger men, an elderly Caleb, still chief of the tribe of Judah, led his family into the promised land. And the thing that's so amazing that I find in Scripture is what is said in Joshua 14. Scripture says that he was as strong at 85 years of age as he was at 40. The Lord truly renews. Charles Spurgeon also said this, where goodness has been increasing, unceasingly received, praise should be unceasingly offered. And that's how, how true that is. I will praise you, said this psalmist, with the harp for your faithfulness. I will sing praise to you. And this refers to corporate worship and what we've done already and what we'll do before we leave today. This means that we need to do it regularly, but our interpretation of what regular means has changed over time. It used to mean that those that saw themselves as regular attenders on worship came when? Every Sunday. Well, now a national survey went out and they took a poll and when they came back, here's what they found out. They found out that today the average churchgoer attends church 1.89 times per month and they consider that regular. Now, let me ask you this. When was the last time somebody said regular and you saw it to be something that meant doing less of something? At the very least, wasn't it keeping consistent the status quo? And really, it should be increasing. And that's what's said in Psalm 71, 14. I will yet praise you more and more. I will worship you more and more. Individually, corporately, privately, publicly. We are to worship regularly. And we are to know what regular means. William Van Gemmeren said this, Praise is the response of awe for God. While reflecting on what the Lord has done for the people of God throughout the history of redemption, for creation at large, for the community, and for oneself. Secondly, we need to testify outward to an audience of many. As signs of God's grace, the writer of the 71st Psalm made it clear that we are to share the Lord and how the Lord has impacted our life. We begin reading in verse 15. He says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. My tongue will tell of your righteous deeds. Their number is past my knowledge. And if we did the math, we would certainly come up with the same calculation. We have stories that need to be shared. We have stories that need to be shared because if we don't, we'll forget them. We have stories that we need to journal because if we don't write them down, they'll be forgotten. They can last after our time on this earth is done. Unlike the TV show Seinfeld, it's not a story about nothing. This is a story with significance. The Lord is able to use us. We draw attention to the Lord when he draws attention to us and then we can not only speak, we can shout. Verse 23, my lips will shout for joy. You know, it's impossible to silently shout. It's an oxymoron. If no one hears, then we're spiritual mimes. And that's not how we're to walk through this life. There's a difference 
And it brings up another thought for me. This is difference between what's personal and what's private. You know, people have said to me before, well, I'm not going to share that. That's private. That's between the Lord and I. Well, yes and no. It's personal is what they really mean. It's between the Lord and you, how he's interacted with you, and each person to your right and to your left, and your story, each one's different, like fingertips, okay, and fingerprints. They're individual and they're unique. But that doesn't mean they're not to be shared. It's personal, your story, but it's public, not private information. It's to be put on display. And when we do that and we look at his scriptures, such as this 71st Psalm, we see opportunities. We see examples of what it should look like as we speak out. Evangelism takeaways from this very chapter. And the first one of those that I want to share with you today is we're to go. Verse 16 says, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts. And that means we're not to remain stationary. We're supposed to be on the move. I declare your marvelous deeds. Our audience will rarely come to us. We must be on the move because we need to go to them. Secondly, we need to identify the target that we're trying to reach. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we see that Christ wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That means everyone out there should be on our radar. And that's exactly what the psalmist says in verse 16. I will tell everyone. Underline everyone. He especially wanted to tell the next generation of what the Lord could do for them. In verse 18, it says, I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. See, the life of faith is to be passed on to our descendants. You know, we are to groom those that are going to one day replace us, but until the Lord calls us home or he returns we are still on the clock, you and I. The Next Gen Spiritual Initiative, Pastor Mike has shared, continues, and it will continue indefinitely because spiritual maturity always involves investing into the future, those who will follow us. And I don't think anyone has said it better than Ernest Campbell. You judge for yourself as you hear these words. To be young is to study in schools that you did not build. To be mature is to build schools in which you will not study. To be young is to sit under trees you did not plant. To be mature is to plant trees under which you will not sit. To be young is to dance to music you did not write. To be mature is to write music to which you will not dance. To be young is to benefit from the church you did not make. To be mature is to make a church from which you will not benefit. The third lesson we get or takeaway we get as we go forward to share our faith is that we should repeat the message. Repeat the message. The writer says this, I will remind them of your righteousness. He is our rock of refuge. He's our security, is he not? And that means that we need to share that. As we talked about last week, the writer made his appeal based on one of God's character attributes, and that was his righteousness, that he could be trusted, that he is faithful. And we need to tell that as often as it takes. We're not one and done. We're not checking a box off. The verse continues. It is yours alone. And that means we defer recognition. It might be easy at times for us to take the credit, but the glory, all of it, goes to the Lord. See, you're not the lead character in your life story. 
And that may sound odd, but as has been said before, your history, my history, is his story. Finally, we are to continue. Verse 17 says, I still proclaim. The NLT version says it this way. I constantly tell others about the wonderful things that you do. See, our trust propels us onward. And there are inhibitors, and the number one inhibitor is us. It's self-inflicted. I like Clint Eastwood movies. It's just one of the things I've always liked. And one of the lines, and I memorized some of the lines, I won't get into today, fire six shots or only five. I'll skip that one today. But one of the lines that I always remembered was this, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> Sorry, that's the best I can do. I can do better, but we don't have time. But as much as I enjoy his movies, I totally disagree with that statement. A man doesn't need to know his limitations. God knows our limitations. Verse 14 in 103, David says this, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. God knows our limitations, and yet, guess what? He still wants to use us. He still chooses us. What we need to know is not our limitations. What we need to know is he is, has none. Limitless. Is there anything our God can't do? It says in Genesis 18. And the answer is no. And we know that when his spirit fills us, that we can do all things through him. See, the writer of the 71st Psalm was not a great orator. But that wasn't about to stop him from speaking. He says this in verse 15, all day long I proclaim your saving power. Let me repeat. What's that first word again? All. All day long I will proclaim your saving power, though I am not skilled with words. You know, maybe it's you today, and maybe you, filled you felt hesitant, and you feel incapable. And we get that. I think we all do. What's the, the joke that uh, the thing that you, uh, uh, the number one fear of people is public speaking, and the second one is death? Have you heard the joke I'm talking about? So that if you're at a funeral, that means you'd rather be the one in the casket than the one that's actually given the eulogy. We're in good company once again if we feel that. In 2 Corinthians eleven six, 6, Paul is called unskilled in speaking. Here's what it says. It's true that I don't have their voice, haven't mastered that smooth eloquence that impresses you so much, but when I do open my mouth, I at least know what I'm talking about. We haven't kept anything back. We let you in on everything, and we're not to keep anything back. We're to let everyone on our radar know everything that we know. Whether speaking to an individual or speaking to a group, it requires faith, and it takes, it's an opportunity for you to grow in your faith. Now, faith is action, not words, but faith can be exercised through the expression of those words. As Christ followers, we are to live courageously because we, our lives, can be assigned to many. We are emissaries of the Lord, and our charge is similar to the one that the Lord gave Paul one day. Back in Acts chapter 23, we read, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now also, since we know that Paul was martyred in Rome, that also tells us that we're supposed to be doing this to the end of the line, to the end of our time. We are, once again, always on the clock. You know, the one thing that
that all mighty warriors of God have in common? It's this. They did not see themselves as mighty. In fact, when some were told to take the lead, to lead the charge, instead they were trying to lead the retreat initially. And we've all been there. We've all done that, unfortunately. But we make a stand today, and we move forward tomorrow. In Judges chapter 6, we read this. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In the ESV, it says, O mighty man of valor. And how did this mighty man of valor respond? In this way. Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered him, I will be with you. Who's doing the work? It's not us. I will be with you. Moses saw a sign. He saw a burning bush. And from that, he heard the voice of the Lord. And the Lord said this, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, same exact five words, I will be with you. Today, are you asking those questions? How can I? Who am I? Once again, you're in pretty good company. And the answer is, you can't. But he can. And God says today and wants you to know today that there is no one better suited to do the job that he's given you to do than you. No one. You're perfect for the position he has placed you in today. It requires us fulfilling our purpose, stepping out of our comfort zone, and we can do that because you are mighty warriors. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For, like Gideon and Moses, I am with you. See, our trust propels us onward. Christ followers need to be seen and heard. We serve our Lord and we promote his agenda, his redemptive plan, and what a privilege it is to be on that team. Paul summarizes all of this in a great way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, Since God has so generously let us in on what he's doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. We refuse to wear masks and play games. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. If our message is obscured to anyone, it's not because we're holding back in any way. No, it's because these people are looking at going the wrong way and refuse to give it serious attention. They're stone blind to the dayspring brightness of the message that shines with Christ, who gives us the best picture of God we'll ever get. Remember, our message is not about ourselves. We are proclaiming Jesus Christ, the master. We carry the precious message. We're not keeping this quiet, not on your life. Just like the psalmist wrote, I believed it, so I said it. And we say what we believe, so we're not giving up. How could we? 
I believe, so I speak. I trust, so I go. Upward, outward, onward. We are walking and talking billboards of Jesus Christ. For our Lord, we have been given a job to do, and we have the same promise given to Gideon and Moses. He will be with us. And when we get to the end of that journey, may each of us arrive not empty-handed. May each of us arrive with a number of people alongside us. Let's pray.